0: Let me encourage you to take your copy of God's Word and look with me to the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 20 and verse 3 as we continue to make our way through the book of Exodus and particularly here see the revelation of God to us in these Ten Commandments. It is our habit here at Woodlawn to take books of the Bible and to preach through those books of the Bible. We rotate between Old Testament. And New Testament works, for we believe that God has equally spoken to us through His Word, both in the Old Testament and the New New Testament. And the words of Jesus are as much as the Word of God as the words of the prophet Isaiah or Moses, for example. So we give our attention to preaching through books of the Bible. Now I will say to you this morning that I am somewhat intimidated by the daunting task of preaching the Ten Commandments, intimidated for a number of reasons, one of which is uh, I feel like preaching through the Ten Commandments, in some ways, is a topical exposition of the text of Scripture, and that's just not where I tend to camp out. It's somewhat difficult, in my mind, uh, to think in these ways. I'm used to taking a paragraph of a New Testament and preaching through that, or an entire narrative in the Old Testament and preaching through that, so you pray for me as we make our journey through the Ten Commandments. I joked with a friend the other day and said, listen, I'm going to give this a try, but if I get to the Ten Com- if I get to the commandment number three and quit, you'll know exactly why, okay? This commandment here, commandment number one serves in so many ways as a foundational principle in the entire heart and narrative of the life of ancient Israel. Commandment number one is going to lay for us a theology of worship, while commandment number two is gonna lay for us a practical application of worship. Commandment number one, do not worship any other gods beside Yahweh. Commandment number two is going to give us some practical ways not to worship Yahweh, our great God and King, as defined in the text of Scripture. Israel spent more than 400 years in Egypt. Now, there are a number of problems that arise for ancient Israel as she spent time down in in Egypt. One of those problems is as you can rightly understand, Israel's temptation to adopt the worldview of Egypt. Egypt operated with a polytheistic culture. They had a multitude of gods. In fact, you might remember, as we made our way through those plague narratives, I pointed out on several different occasions how many believe that each of those plague narratives was in some measurable way directly striking at the heart of one of the gods ancient Egypt worshipped. For example, the first plague, the Nile was turned into blood. That, that plague is often asho- associated with the goddess Happy H-A-P-I, pronounced as you and I say the word happy, happy. This goddess was linked to the Nile and its annual flooding, what was God doing, if indeed striking at the heart of this pagan culture in their worship of a multitude of gods? What was, what was Yahweh declaring? Who is God of the now, happy or Yahweh? Yahweh, thank you, buddy. We see plague number two, the goddess Haket who is depicted with a frog's head is sometimes connected with the plague of frogs. We get toward the end of these plague narratives in darkness. Ra was the sun god, indirectly challenged by the plague of darkness. And it would appear that in total, what God is doing and reigning supreme over these various gods is reminding ancient Israel of exactly who... He is. And now we come to this wilderness journey. Israel has now left the plains of Egypt. They're now over in the wilderness. They're headed toward the promised land that God had given to them. And here God is going to pause with the nation of Israel and formulate a covenant with him, with them, a unique relationship between Yahweh and his People. And forging this covenant with his people, the first stipulation that God would require of his people is that they reject all other gods and only accept him as supreme. Thus we read these words, seven words in Hebrew, as the first words of the first commandment. Exodus chapter twenty, verse three. You shall have no other gods before me seven straightforward simple words in hebrew stated in the negative and they mean to keep or to refrain from having a relationship with you can see it in a positive way keep Or in a negative way, do not refrain from having any other relationship with. Now this word in your English Bibles, if you'll look back to verse 3, you shall have. You shall have is a Hebrew word that we get our to be word from. It's it's a verb, to be, hayah. And you see an imperfect form of it here in this passage of Scripture, you shall have no other. But it's interesting to see how this word is used and developed in the Old Testament. For example, one of the ways in which this verb is used is in the relationship of marriage. This word is used in the relationship of of marriage of defining what marriage is, marriage is indeed the having of another or the keeping of another, or the refraining from having any other other than one. So you can understand why this word would be used in the Hebrew Bible. To define that marriage relationship, let's look at two examples just real quickly with me. Turning your Bibles to the book of Leviticus, Leviticus chapter 21. Leviticus chapter 21, here is a passage of scripture that is part of the law code, the extended law code of God to, to Moses, to the people. And here, God is going to have something to say about this marriage relationship. Leviticus chapter 21, verse 3. Leviticus 21, verse 3. Or his virgin sister, who is near to him because she has... Do you see this next word? She has had no husband. The use of this word, to become, to have... To keep. This is what God is declaring for the nation of Israel. They shall have, they shall keep no other God besides Yahweh. Used in the context of defining marriage relationships. Turn just one more book of the Bible over and let's look in Deuteronomy chapter 24. Not one more book, two, sorry. Deuteronomy chapter 24. Deuteronomy twenty four, verse two. This is in direct response to laws concerning marriage. Verse two, and if she goes, and here's the word again, and becomes another man's wife. Use and Covenant relationship of marriage, of becoming, or of, of having, or or keeping. But what's interesting is how the use of this word would not only be used to describe that covenant relationship between one man and one woman, this word would also be used in God's reflection of his covenant relationship with all of Israel, with the entirety of God's people. Look with me in 2 Samuel chapter 7. 2 Samuel chapter 7, you'll see the use of this word as God is reflecting on this covenant relationship between himself and the nation of Israel. 2 Samuel chapter 7. Second Samuel chapter 7 verse 24. 2nd Samuel chapter 7 verse 24. And you establish for yourself, your people Israel. Do you see that to be verb? To be your people forever. And you, O Lord, here it is for the second time, became there, God. One theologian wrote, "Quote: The most intimate of all relationships on the human plane became the analogy for God's intimate relationship with His people." You see what God is doing. He's using a word in the giving of this commandment. It finds to keep. To have, to become in the positive or or stated, if you will, in the negative, to refrain from having a relationship with another, this commandment implies for you and me that there may be no third parties involved in our relationship with God. God isn't interested and you, and him, and another, God is interested in you, and him, us, and him, God is interested in you, and I, as his covenant people, having only one God, God is interested in you, and I, operating with a, with a heart, with a disposition set to, to say, I will have No other. This is what God means in the giving of this first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. Now, most of your Bibles, indeed, translates the end of verse 3 as before me. But literally, in the Hebrew, what the Lord says is, you shall have no other gods before me my face. Now it's a reference to the totality of who God is. In fact, this word face is going to be used in numerous passages throughout the Old Testament. But ultimately, I believe this is what God is capturing in this, in this use of this word panim, you shall have no other God before my face. Men may be able to evade the eyes of Of another man. You can look away friend, you can turn away, but you and I will not be able to escape the notice of God while paying homage to another. Sometimes with your kids you want to get their attention, do you not? You can do that in a variety of different ways, but I found it very effective in my house if I could take them and pull them in really close and look at them face to face. What am I articulating? One thing I'm articulating is to say to them, I want to minimize any potential distractions that I might have in communicating with you. For those of you who sit on the back row, for example, you have much more of a distraction in my communication to you than the people down here on the front. By the way, this is why my wife has to sit on the front row. She's so easily distracted. We, we understand that concept, right? I have to do the same thing. I have to sit on the front row. If I'm sitting on the back row, I will notice everything everybody in the building does. I'll notice the guy who lifts his arm up to, to write with a pen of the corner of my eye. The, the person sitting in front of me who's, who's taking a, a simulated siesta while the music's going on. I'll notice them. I'll see everything. I'll completely miss singing the song or hearing what the preacher is saying. I'm easily distracted. You know what God is acknowledging? He understands Israel, like you and me, Israel, like our children, is so easily distracted. God is saying this His commandment, He's grabbing you and me by the shoulders, and He's pulling us in close And he's saying, look at me in my face. Look only at me in my face. Hear only these words from me. Don't be distracted by another. Don't be tempted to gaze at another. Don't be tempted to give your affection to another. Look directly at me. Don't bring any other gods before my face. And we get to the end of the Pentateuch and Moses' narrative and relationship with ancient Israel. There's a passage that we're familiar with in Deuteronomy chapter 6. We know it affectionately as the Shema, as the Lord would say to ancient Israel, hear O Israel. I can't help but think as brother Moses is getting toward the end of, of his leadership in the life of the nation of Israel, as he's pinning these words from the Lord, that what God is saying back to the nation of Israel, in summary, is what he has now said to them twice in the giving of the Ten Commandments. Hear these words from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4, 5, and 6, hear, O Israel, The Lord our God, your Bibles and my Bible, many of them translates it, the Lord is one. And for sure, that's indeed a fair translation. In fact, as as we get to the New Testament, uh, we know that when Jesus quotes from the Shema, having been asked what is the greatest commandment in all the world, he quotes from the Shema, Jesus gives us not the Hebrew translation of the Old Testament, Jesus gives us the Septuagint. That's a Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, and Jesus says to us, the Lord is one. But literally from the Hebrew, hear these words again, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord alone. The Lord alone what? You shall love the Lord alone. The Lord your God, how? With all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your might, with the entirety of of who you are. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. They shall define who you are. See, friends, Moses is not asking the nation of Israel, ultimately, how many Yahwehs are there? Moses isn't interested in in how many gods there are. Moses isn't interested in asking or answering the question, what is Yahweh like? Moses is asking, whom will Israel worship? And friends, this is what God is asking you and me this morning. Whom will you worship? Before whom will you bow down? As Pastor Ryan said a few moments ago in reflecting before he prayed, the temptation of every one of our hearts is to be like the nation of Israel in Exodus 32. And we are so quick to form gods in our own making. We are bowing like the nation of Israel at the altars of of so many different gods, even though the text of Scripture is clear and it's called to monotheism. Stay with me in the book of Deuteronomy and look at Deuteronomy chapter 4 just real quickly. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 39 Deuteronomy four thirty nine. "'Know therefore today and lay it to your heart "'that the Lord is God in heaven above "'and on earth beneath there is no other.'" Listen to what God declares in, in Isaiah chapter 45 in verses five through six. "'I am the Lord and there is no other. "'Besides me there is no God. "'I equip you though you do not know me.'" For what purpose that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me. The call of the Old Testament is a call to monotheism. It's a call to pledge our allegiance to only one God. But how does ancient Israel hold up to that? Quickly in Exodus 32, they fall away. Doesn't take them long. We get to Judges, and what's happening in the book of Judges, both in the north and in the south? The nation of Israel is continuing to bow at the altar of Baal. This would be what a number of their kings would would lead them to do it. In First Kings, they, they bowed at the altar of Melech, and King Ahab led the nation of Israel to build an altar to Baal as well, and then King Manasseh, King Manasseh down in the southern part of the kingdom, well he invites all of the polytheists into the temple in Jerusalem, and there he sets up a pantheon in the temple of the holy God to all the gods around them. The narrative of ancient Israel unfortunately isn't too far removed from the narrative of our modern world. The narrative of ancient Israel is not too far removed from the narrative of my life. The narrative of ancient Israel is not too far removed from all of our lives. To what altar are we bowing? We bow at the altar of materialism. We live in a culture that often values wealth, success, Possessions. Isn't it so easy to let materialism become a god in our lives? We spend the majority of our adult lives pursuing, pursuing wealth and an accumulation of possessions. For what purpose? So that at some defined time in our lives we might retire and live comfortably. Now, as Is there anything wrong in and of itself of being wise with our funds and our monies? No. That's not the God before whom we bow. It's when our hearts are not satisfied with God alone, and I just have to have X amount in an account, or X possessions, or X number of houses, or or a, a vacation spot in just the right place, and I spend all of my time pursuing that one thing to the neglect of another. That's bowing at the altar of materialism. We bow to the God of approval. We spend way too much time far Too concerned about what other people think about us and not what God thinks about us. It controls too many of our lives and the way we dress. It controls too many of us, especially some of you students. It controls you in such a way with the things that you're willing to engage in, the conversations you're willing to have just so that you might find the approval of another. We bow at the God of our children. When we elevate our children to the level that only God should occupy in terms of our affection, our worship, such that our children dictate to us what we will do and what we won't do, and too oftentimes a dictation of that is not a move toward God, it's a move away from God. We bow at the altar of personal ambitions. went to seminary in 2004 and by God's kindness and grace I went on a presidential scholarship my first year started working for the dean of the school of theology and worked my way up into academic administration and that position gave me access to all sorts of Powerful people in the Southern Baptist Convention. And before I knew it, my heart was not at seminary for what I could gain in my understanding of who God was. My heart was at seminary for what I could gain in personal ambition and rubbing elbows. With just the right people. And God used an exceedingly humble experience in our lives with a church in Fort Worth. And I'll never forget sitting in the dean's office overlooking the beautiful campus of Southwestern Seminary. When he said to me, Lewis, I want you to learn a lesson that I didn't learn until I served my first church. Dr. Allen said, my first church, my office set over the parking lot, and during Sunday school on multiple occasions, I would pull my blinds down and I would count the cars in the parking lot so I would know how many people were going to be in attendance and the record of the number of people attending the service dictated to me how I would proclaim God's Word. And he said, Lewis, learn a lesson now. Don't be concerned about the people in the pew. Be concerned about the presence of God in your life. And friends, whether pastor, lawyer, teacher, stay-at-home mom, engineer, the fact of the matter is every one of us share in a same heart, a heart left unchecked, uncontrolled, will always lead us down a path not toward God, but away from God. For too many of us, we're bowing at the altar of personal ambition. And yet we hear that loud, booming voice of God. Don't do it. You shall not have. Don't bring any of that before my face. God is saying, don't bring any of that into my house. A pledge to give our lives to God is a commitment to say, I won't have any third parties engaged in my relationship with God. Thus, friends, we have to continually to evaluate our hearts, our thinking. And this is exactly what Jesus is striking at when he's asked that question Teacher, what is the greatest commandment? And he quotes for those people, beginning with the Shema, the Lord. The Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Friends, this isn't only the expectation of the Old Testament. It is also the expectation of the New Testament. The Old Testament and the New Testament speak in unison with one another that you and I are to only have one God before us, that we are only to pledge our lives to one The New Testament will reveal for you and me that the one to whom we pledge our lives is Jesus. For Jesus says, unless you're willing to deny yourself and take up your cross, you cannot follow him. What is Jesus doing, friends? Jesus in that statement is acknowledging what God had already communicated in the Ten Commandments and throughout the Old Testament. There is only one to whom we should pledge our lives. Remember when Jesus was tempted in the wilderness by Satan? Satan would go after Jesus in four different ways. And in Matthew chapter 4, listen at how Jesus would respond to Satan Verse 8, again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Even the temptation for Jesus was to abandon monotheism. The temptation for Jesus was to invite another into his relationship with his father. But how does Jesus respond? Be gone, Satan. For it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Jesus' heart was directed by a steadfast commitment to walk in obedience to the Lord, the Lord as revealed in his word. This is what Paul is striking at as he weaves together this beautiful tapestry of the gospel narrative for us in the book of Romans. In Romans chapter 3, we learn in chapter 1, verses 18 through the end of the chapter, that all of the Gentiles are sinners. In Romans chapter 2, we learn that all of the Jews are sinners. In Romans chapter 3, we learn that every single one of us is a sinner. For all have sinned and all have fallen short of the glory of God. But Paul begins in verse 21 to weave together this beautiful depiction of this gospel narrative that while all of us are sinners, all of us also stand equally before the feet of God in terms of redemption. How are we redeemed? Through the shedding of Jesus' blood. Jesus has paid a sacrifice for each and every person. So that by faith we might be placed in a right relationship with God. And hear what Paul would write in Romans chapter three verse 30. "Since God is one." He would tell us, chapter two, earlier in chapter three, there's no partiality in God. Since God is one. Who will justify the, uncir- the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith? Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. What is God showing us? That even in His administration of salvation, God is functioning as one. There's no distinction between the will of God and the work of Christ and the witness of the Spirit in salvation. No, they're working in one direction. What is that one direction? Providing salvation to all people. How? By faith and through faith. And we worship Jesus and Jesus alone. Why? Because Jesus is sovereign over all things. This is what he would declare in Matthew chapter 11. The very end of Matthew chapter 11, as he compassionately calls his followers to, to come to him and to place all of their, their cares and their sorrows at his feet. He does so because he sends as a sovereign. Listen to what he says. And all things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. Jesus is sovereign over all. Jesus created all things. Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 and 7, for through Him and by Him, Paul declares, have all things been created. Jesus is even called Lord. Both in Acts and in Romans, the way in which one is redeemed is by confessing Jesus as who? Lord. An acknowledgement that Jesus himself is God. And then Paul would write for you and me that beautiful hymn in Philippians chapter 2 verses 9 through 11 And there he would acknowledge for us that there is only one who is worthy of our worship. And who is that one? Jesus. Jesus. God. In Exodus chapter 20, verse 30, is making a passionate plea that his people would enter into covenant relationship with only one. Each of us have a temptation to place worldly pursuits and material possessions or even personal desires ahead of our relationship with God. That temptation, friends, will be as strong when you leave this building today as it was as when you came in. Because that temptation is ever before us. But how do we fight that temptation? How do we avoid that temptation? How do we make sure that that temptation does not lead us into sin? The writer of Hebrews would say it best. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, laying aside all those sins that so easily cling to us and and weigh us down. Lay it aside and do what? Look to Jesus, who is the author and finisher of our faith. Would you look to Christ this morning, friend? Would you look to Christ and Christ alone? Would you look to Christ and Christ alone with a commitment to not gaze at another? Would you look to Christ and Christ alone with a commitment to never even engage and bring another into that relationship? Would you look to Christ and Christ alone and pull him close? to your face let's pray God we thank you for the grace that you have extended to us through Christ we acknowledge this morning Lord that in so many ways we too fall short of this command to pledge our lives to you and you alone to worship you and you alone God we would ask this morning that by your spirit you would forgive us Those many times in which we so easily and quickly bow before the altar of another. And would you steady our hearts? Would you strengthen our spirits to enable us to be people who continually walk by the Spirit? Friend, would you take a few moments where you're seated this morning? and reflect upon the preaching of God's Word? In what ways do you see your life walking in obedience to Exodus chapter 20, verse 3? In what ways do you delight in worshiping God and God alone? In what ways do you see your life being lived out in that pursuit. Would you ask God to strengthen those areas in your life? Say, Pastor, I delight in joining with God's people on Sunday morning. Would you ask Him to increase that delight in you? Pastor, I, I enjoy opening the words of, of Scripture and spending time during the day and reading the Word of God, would you ask God to increase that joy in your life? Pastor, I enjoy serving others. Would you ask God to increase your delight in service? And as you thank God for all the many ways in which you see your life walking in faithfulness to this text of Scripture, would you ask Him by His Spirit to show you the altars of Baal that you so quickly bow before. Perhaps you're here today and you say, Pastor, my altar is not that of my children. But perhaps it's lust. Would you ask God by His Spirit to show you those areas in your life you're so willing to bring in another. As God reveals those to you this morning, would you just confess them where you're seated and ask the Lord to forgive you? Friend, we would want you to know this morning that you can never walk in right relationship with God in this way if you've never trusted in Christ. And perhaps you're here today and you, you acknowledge my life is one big battle with a multitude of, of gods. And the reason that is true is because you've never bowed before the altar of Christ confessing Him as Lord. Would you turn from your sin today and trust in Christ where you're seated? The scripture says, whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. You can acknowledge today that Jesus is Lord. The Bible says in doing so, you'll be saved. In just a few moments, friends, we're going to stand and corporately respond to the preaching of God's word by singing together in Christ alone. Friend, as we sing that hymn together, if you have questions about what it means to trust in Christ, myself and Pastor Travis will be standing down front. It'd be completely appropriate and fine for you to come forward and speak to one of us, but you don't have to come forward and speak to one of us, friend. Please feel free to turn to someone seated next to you. There are plenty of God-honoring, Bible-believing Christians that would delight in sharing with you how you can trust in Christ. Secondly, maybe you'd like one of us just to pray with you that the truths of this text might indeed resonate in your heart and your mind. We would delight in shepherding your heart by praying for you today. And thirdly, maybe God has impressed upon your heart that this is a congregation in which you need to be connected to live out your life on mission with Christ. This would be an opportunity for you to express your interest in being part of this faith family. God, as we stand now and respond to you, we ask that our response might be pleasing. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand with me as we sing?